Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might work amongst us, that you might um, do that miraculous task of transforming our minds by the renewing of our spirits through, your work, through the work of your Holy Spirit, through your word. We pray to, today that it might um, bring you honour and glory, all that happens, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Romans 15 is the passage we're looking at today and one of the things that uh, always does for me is it brings me face to face with a man who's quite driven and I want to think with you about being driven, uh, particularly at the moment, uh, this last week has kind of brought this to my attention in another way as well. I don't know if you follow sports much, um, the very refined, sophisticated sports, but uh, the Olympics, for instance. So uh, they announced the Olympic team this, uh, for the swimming this week, 35 men and women who are going to represent Australia in the Olympic swimming. Uh, now, if there is a picture of drivenness, it's swimmers, isn't it? Olympic swimmers. Did you watch any of the swimming? This um, So Kate Campbell was up against uh, Emma McEwen in the 100 metres uh, freestyle. And it was won by Emma McEwen by in 52 seconds, right? That's 100 metres, not 25 metres. That's 100 metres, 52 seconds. That's an extraordinary time, isn't it? But Kate Campbell came second, and she came second by 0.25 of a second, I think it was. Like, that is, you know, that's that much, over 100 metres. Um, do you know how, how much swimming they put in place to get that speed? Is it, what, four hours a day, up and down a pool, in a mind-numbing exercise of watching that line on the bottom of the pool? Um, for, like, how much more have you got to do? Like, this is Kate Campbell's fourth Olympics. How much more has she got to do to get that extra half a metre in the competition? How many more hours has she got to swim? I mean, that is driven, isn't it? You've got people who are consumed by this thing that they're pursuing. And actually, let me just think with you for a moment. What drives people to that kind of exercise? What drives people to pursue that kind of life? Give us your thoughts. Passion. 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 But what drives the passion? Commute. What was that? Dedication. dedication. But what drives the dedication? Goal. Goal. A goal. There's a goal that they're trying to achieve. But why? A gold glory. Now we're getting somewhere I want to be. <laughs> what drives it? Yes, a gold medal. Yes, but I mean, it's just, it's a bit of nothing, really. But the glory of it, yeah. What else? Now we're getting down to the, hey? Fame, fortune, swimmer. I don't know about that. But yeah, lots of people are driven because of money. You'll see um, men and women who actually climb the corporate ladder. Um, one of the big drivers for them is is fame and so on, but also money, the, the wealth that can be attained through that. Yeah, what else drives people to these kinds of ends? Ambition, Ambition yeah, drive, drive, drives them, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a, look, let me give you my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we can fiddle like this for a long time, but let me give you my thoughts. You've got lots of different drivers, haven't you? You've got, you've got the kind of negative, uh, a desire for approval, sort of uh, a great empty need and you, and you want to actually fill it, you want to get approved, you want to actually have glory and significance because you've not ever... It, it could be actually this kind of... Um, it is money, it's fear, it's, it's the love of stuff. It's the, there's various kind of drivers, glory and what have you. Um, sometimes it can be a very genuine, uh, uh, a pure drive for the love of someone else. Uh, not for your own needs, what you want, but actually for something. Now, I can't see that. There's very little sport that you can see that. The love of others really driving sport. Um, synchronised swimming just does not seem to me to be driven by the love of others. But, um, 
Now, this is, this is all part of what I'm wanting to start with you, because in chapter 15 of Romans, you've got a very driven man. Let me just give you a bit of background. What you've got here is a, a letter written by Paul, the Apostle. He's written to a church in, or to Christians in Rome, uh, very early in the history of the Christian church. And uh, in the midst of this letter, uh, he, as he comes to the end of this letter, I should say, he now starts to share very personally about what's going on for him. And we're in that part of the letter now, chapter 15. And here we have Paul talking about things that he's doing, what he's doing, where he's going, which is one thing, but what's particularly important is why he did it. Why he did it. This is an insight into the life of Paul. Now, the thing to say to start is that Paul's life was unique. His travels, the cost on his life, the intentionality, the drivenness, his life was unique unrepeatable in human history. I hope I'm not overstating that, but Paul, it's, Paul didn't just travel around the Mediterranean like anyone travelled around the Mediterranean. His role was particularly and unique in human history and therefore we can't read all of this and go, Paul did this, we should do this. No, that's not the message of Romans 15. Paul went here, we should go there. Paul went to Spain, this is what the Bacons have come to. This is the verse they opened. They went, go to Spain. So we're, we're going, Kiri went somewhere else, but they went to Romans 15. No, no, no. It's not about what he did, you should do. The thing that speaks to us is why he did what he did. What drove him to do the things he did? And I want to suggest to you today that the thing that drove him to do the things he did is, is something at the heart of the universe. It's something huge, it's the big thing in the universe. So that, whether you go to Spain or not, there's much to be gained from this passage. So that whatever your life is, you know, a builder, a professional, a nurse, whatever your role in life is, Christian, non-Christian, This passage speaks to us about what matters, what's important. Let me first consider with you the unique circumstances of Paul. I'm going to run through this passage very quickly as a first pass, just to give you a sense of what Paul was doing and then kind of help us see how it was unique. Have a look with me at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 15. I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because the grace God gave me. But here's the grace God gave him. The grace of God was given to him, to verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Just pick that up, the word Gentile. Uh, we've heard it before, just to remind you again. In, in the world of Jewishness, so Paul was a Jew and the Bible is very much shaped by Jewishness. In the world of Jewishness, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Jews, children of Abraham, Israel, and non-Jews. And the non-Jews are called Gentiles. Jew, Gentile. That's the only kinds of people in the world. A very simple way of seeing things. And Paul is given to be, verse 16, a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. He is part of the movement of God into the world to save the world in a unique way. 
Now, it's difficult to convey this, but let me try in a few words give you some sense of the part that Paul plays. It's very important to have this. God, human sin, uh, Genesis chapter 3, we rebel against God, we reject God's rule over us. Uh, but God in His grace, right from the very beginning, determines not just to condemn us in that, but to save us. To save the world and to save the nations, Genesis chapter 12. But the way He chooses to go about saving the nations, the world, from its sinful rebelliousness against Him, is by choosing one man, Abram, and making him into a great nation, the Jewish nation. And because it's through Abraham and the Jewish nation that he determines to bring salvation to all the nations, to the Gentiles. Now, you might go, well, that's a strange way to do it, but that's the way God chose to do it. And that is a way that's profound and deep. So, within that nation, he finally brings the saviour of the world, who was a Jew, the man Jesus. Born as a descendant from and within the context and culture of the Jewish world. Jesus is born, raised in that context born though to die, because by his death, he pays the penalty for sinners, for the sin of the whole world, for the sin of all the nations. He pays the debt by standing under the judgment of God that we all deserve in our place, so that any who put their faith in him can have that death apply to them. He then rises again to life, conquering death and making forgiveness possible. But then, he sends out preachers, Jews, 12 of them. And these Jewish preachers go out to speak of his victory on the cross and his death, his resurrection, the way to salvation as being now through him, the only hope is being through faith and faith alone in him. And these first preachers went to the Jews and preached this message to them. But it was God's plan always to bring that message to the world. And so he chose one man, Paul. You get it told to us in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 27, Acts chapter 21. You get a number three times in the book of Acts. Paul's conversion experience and appointment to the role of bringing the news of Jesus the Jew beyond Jews to the whole world. He is appointed as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so unique is this role that Paul says of himself in Colossians chapter 1, that he fills up in his own flesh what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now you think to yourself, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, Christ's afflictions brought the news of his victory to the Jews, but what was lacking was the bringing of that news to the Gentiles. And so Paul is appointed to complete the work of bringing that message to the world. He chose him to be that one. You see, this was always God's purpose. His purpose was to raise up the Jewish nation, bring a saviour from within it, have him provide salvation, make salvation so that the preaching of it would bring salvation. Paul completes it by bringing it to the nations. But he completes it by bringing it to the nations through an extraordinarily sovereign work of God, where God hardens the Jews. Do you remember this in Romans 9, 10 and 11? So, so to get it out to the nation, what God does is he brings the gospel to the Jews, then hardens the Jews, so that when Paul preaches to the Jews, they refuse to receive his message, 
hardens them so that he is driven to preach it to us. But God's plan, of course, is with the preaching to the nations that that might arouse the Jews back to jealousy and bring the gospel back to them again so that all will be saved because that's God's great plan, his mercy to the world. Paul is unique. He sits in a place that is massively significant in human history, in God's purposes. Verse 16, he was given the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's very conscious of God's work in his life in all of this. Uh, Verse 19 and 20, you see there the power of signs, wonders and miracles by the Spirit of God. Paul is very aware that God is at work in him as he brings this gospel to the world. And it took him, verse uh, 19, it took him from Jerusalem, the centre, all the way around to Illyricum, where he has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Um, His purpose was, verse 21, that those who are not told about him will see, those who have not heard will understand. Now, for your information, verse 21 is a quote from Isaiah 52. Isaiah was written many centuries before Jesus. If you know the book of Isaiah, you'll know that as the end of the book of Isaiah comes in, there's a series of four songs that are called servant songs written about a coming servant who would bring salvation to the world. Jesus fulfills those four songs. But so too does Paul. Paul quotes it here, verse 21, one of the songs is referring to him. And he also quotes in Acts chapter 13, one of the servant songs as referring to him. Paul is unique and extraordinary in his role. Now, at the time of writing verse 24, come to verse 24, he hasn't finished this role of bringing the gospel to the nations. I plan to go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there. Uh, His determination is to go to those who haven't yet heard, to plant the gospel in the far nations. But, verse 25, he has a sidetrack. He needs to go back to Jerusalem which is a complete reversal of direction if you know your geography. So you've got, you know, Jerusalem over here, uh, Israel and Palestine and so on. He's been up in this kind of region around Turkey. He's gone over into Greece, Rome's further this way, Spain's further over. And he's heading, he's probably in Corinth riding. He needs now to go, he wants to go to Spain, but he goes all the way back to Jerusalem. And then we'll come back to Rome on his way to Spain. Now, why does he go back there? We'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment. But he goes to take a gift of money to the Jewish Christians who were suffering terribly in a famine. And uh, verse 28, his plan is to start again after he's completed his journey back to Jerusalem uh, to then go on to Spain and visit the Roman Christians on the way so that he will come in the full measure of the blessing of God. Um, Now, there is the picture... And what I want to offer, again, is that Paul is unique. He fits within the Christian kind of frame in a unique place, unrepeatable, unrepeatable. But it also means you can't separate Paul out from Christianity. 
There is a very great temptation in recent times to kind of, let's just focus on the words of Jesus and Paul, you can take or leave him, there's stuff he says you don't really like as much, but what this shows you is the way Jesus commissions Paul and the way Paul understands his role under God is that he is integral to the very core of the Gospel work. Uniquely, you cannot divide Paul from Jesus. It's not Jesus Christianity and Pauline Christianity, the two are entwined intimately commissioned by Jesus, Paul, to be to the Gentiles, to complete God's work of saving. And notice, just in passing to the history, Romans 15 helps you see how much the Christian faith is grounded in time and space, facts, geography, places. This is not myth and legend. Uh, This is very soon after the life and death of Jesus and His resurrection, you are in touch with historical realities. Really very helpful to remind us that we're in, we're in touch with something that is real. The death, resurrection of Jesus and the proclamation of that to the world. Paul is unique. We don't read what he didn't go and do it. Unless you're the Bacons and you go off to Spain. But what is not unique is the thing that drove him. Why did he do all of this? Now, we don't need to guess because Paul tells us why he did it. And I'm going to suggest to you there's two big reasons why he did it. There's an obvious one and then a less obvious one, which leads him to have certain partnerships. Let me take you through that train of thought. Why did he do it? There's an obvious reason, at least least I hope it's obvious. Why did he do it? Because of the gospel of Jesus. Because of the gospel of Jesus. Because without the news of Jesus, people are lost eternally. His mission is to bring people to the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from trusting God. The obedience of coming back under the rule of God, that they might be saved. That's his purpose. Saving people from judgment. Now, I say this particularly because in recent years, missionary work has come in for lots of critique. Uh, you, 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 you couldn't but notice that culturally, people are down on missionaries, down on the history of mission work, associating it usually with uh, the kind of imposition of Western culture on noble savages and the ruin of the world and so on. There's lots of critique going around about missionaries. Um, And yes, not all missionary work has been done as wisely as it could have been done. But, you strip back life to its bare basics. You you consider the, the depth of the claims made in this book, in this letter. That there is a God who is revealing His wrath, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, from heaven against humanity. Because humanity have not lived honouring Him like we ought, giving thanks to Him, but have actually become foolish and pursued our own gods and created our own things to live for and lived in rebellion against... There's no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God. Everyone has turned aside and together become worthless. We have taken humankind out from relationship with God and destroyed ourselves. And the first chapters of this book make very clear that Paul says, this is serious. There is hell. There is judgment to come, eternal condemnation. But there is a hope of rescue. 
Romans chapter 3. The hope of rescue is found because of the grace of God in giving up His only Son as a propitiation by His blood. Do you remember the language? It's a sacrifice of atonement. Because of the death of Jesus, there is now a way to be forgiven and restored and reconciled with God by faith and faith alone. But the only hope of finding that rescue, says Romans 9, is by having the news of that event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaimed. And this is so important and so countercultural. I want to take you there. Have a look at Romans 10. Come back to Romans 10. I want to show you uh, Paul's inescapable logic. Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the beautiful affirmation because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. It's possible now for everybody, Jew and Gentile, whatever nation, whatever, whatever race, whatever, whatever section, what, for everybody to now come and find salvation. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Verse 14. But how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? What answer does he expect us to give to that question? How can they call on the one they've not believed in? They can't. You can't call on Jesus the Lord for salvation if you've not believed in the Lord. But how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? Now here's where the rub comes, you see. If salvation's found in calling on the name of the Lord, then I can't do that if I've not heard of the Lord. And, and further to this, how can they hear of him without someone preaching to them? If no one brings me the news of Jesus, then I haven't got Jesus to call on and so I can't call on him and be saved, I can't have salvation. And how can anyone preach, verse 15, unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, Paul's inescapable logic goes this way. Um, Jesus now provides a way of salvation, but you need to call on his name to be saved. But how can you call on his name if you've not heard of his name? You can't. And how can you find about this one without someone preaching? You can't. How beautiful the feet of those who bring good news because that's the only way to bring the news of Jesus which we can call upon to find salvation. Now that may raise questions for you. What is this saying about people who have never heard of Jesus? Is this saying that they are lost eternally? Now put aside that for a moment and reflect with me. What do you think Paul would say was the answer to that question? What would Paul say the answer to that question was? Without hearing the news of Jesus, there is no hope of salvation. Now, as I say, it may raise questions for you about, that doesn't sound fair, how can that be appropriate and so on. The book of Romans answers all of that. But I want us to feel at the moment, the, the, the one who has been commissioned by Jesus himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, the words of God to us, creates that logic, if you like. There is no salvation outside of having heard the news of Jesus. Now, if that's true, I'm convinced it is. But if that's true, what follows? Missionary activity is the most important work we can do. If it's true, there is no hope apart from hearing the news of Christ 
then bringing the news of Christ is the most important human activity able to be done, necessary to be done. It's heaven and hell work. It's life and death work. Now, I'm very glad for all kinds of other jobs. I'm glad that we have builders and you know, doctors and nurses and, and accountants and electric... I'm glad we have all of these different jobs. It makes life function and so on. But none of them hold a candle to the importance of bringing the news of Jesus. Because that work saves people from eternal condemnation. You know, we live in a culture that despises missionary work. It rejects it as some kind of imperial imposition on cultures that have destroyed them. But that same culture that despises missionary work is the culture that rejects any thought of God as a judge. These things go hand in hand. The more more convinced you are that God, if there is a God, won't judge, the less interested you'll be in missionary work. But the more convinced you are that there is an eternal realm, there is an eternal God, an invisible God, who will one day judge, there is a heaven and a hell, the more convinced you are of those realities and that the only hope of being rescued from hell is by the gospel proclamation of Jesus, the more convinced you are of those the more committed you will be to mission work. And in fact, I might offer this thought. Yes, missionary activity over the centuries has not been as sensitive as it could have been to cultures. It has damaged various indigenous cultures. I think that's been the case, unhelpfully. But the thought of protecting cultures will be less of a priority the more you see what's eternally at stake. Bushfires, we've just had um, had a whole raft of bushfires, Australians know bushfires. Imagine a family trapped in a home with a bushfire front coming towards them and the the fire has come to to rescue, to bring the family out of their house and bring them to safety. If they've got time, it would be lovely to make sure they helped grab all the works of art and sculpture and the music collection and the family dog and the the photo album. If you had time, it would be lovely to make sure you cared for the family to bring all of that with them. But when the urgent firefront's about to hit, what are you most particularly focused on? Leave the dog. Get the family out. Now, wow, that had a reaction, didn't it? <laughs> Let's just go through this again. Human life, animal life. Would you rush in to get the baby or the dog? Both, okay. If you could only get one. You had the mother in one arm and you had one arm free and there was the baby and the dog, the cat. This makes it simpler. (laughs) You know what I mean? Okay, now we're getting there, all right? Yeah, 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 gotcha. The guinea pigs. So, um, (laughs) guinea pigs are disposable. Isn't that the whole idea with guinea pigs? uh... (laughs) 
The great thing about them is if you lose one, you can replace them, the kid never knows that it's, <laughs> anything's happened. But um, I can't remember where I was. <laughs> Bushfires. Now, I, I, look, here's, here's what I want to do for us. I, I may not be able to, I've just realised now, I may not be able to persuade you of the point I want to make, but let me make the point and let you live with it. <laughs> and you work out what to do with it. What good is it to gain the whole world, yet lose your soul? Do you believe that? What good is it to gain every artwork, every cultural uh, artefact, um, what good is it to gain all of that and lose your soul? Jesus brings a very great clarity to the um, primacy of human life over everything else. Do you have that? Or have you bought into modern cultural thinking at this point? None of this is, none of this is to suggest that the best missionaries ought to just trample culture. Not at all. In large measure, chapter 14 of Romans... Uh, is a chapter that helps us appreciate that cultural differences still exist within the Christian community. That is, the, the, the Jewish culture is continued to be encouraged and reflected on law-keeping and circumcision and so on, not for justification, but for an expression of Jewishness is still acceptable and appropriate within the Christian community. Um, cultural affirmation is appropriate. Let a Jew be a Jew and a Gentile a Gentile. But the big driver for the Apostle Paul, or a big driver for the Apostle Paul, was a conviction about heaven and hell, and so the love of people, that they be saved. This is what drove him to do what he did and pay the price that he paid. Do you believe it? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you believe the only hope is the preaching of the gospel? Our days will soon be gone. But also, more deeply, there was a driver for the Apostle Paul. You see, the love of people was a great driver. But there was another love that drove Paul, and it was the love of God. I want you to notice in this chapter how often he talks about God, how often it dominates his language. Have a good verse 15. I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ, Jesus. So that the Gentiles, proclaiming the gospel of God. So the Gentiles might be offering acceptable to God. Uh, you, you come down to verse 18. Um, accepted uh, anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Do you see? That they may obey God, verse 18. Paul is dominated by the concern of God in his life. He's captivated by the truth of God, the reality of God, that He is all things. He is in all things. Through Him, all things have come, and for Him, all things exist. God dominates His thinking, His honour, that people hear of Jesus and find life in Him, yes, but that people hear Jesus find life in Him for the glory of God. This is a massive recalibration for us. It's a shift from what I'm going to call, what many people have called, man-centred to God-centred. Man-centred. Is to think about the needs in our world from a human point of view. What humans need. God-centred. Is to shift the seat to see what matters is God in all we do. And Paul reveals a very deep and wonderful, critical orientation of life. He sees everything through what God is owed and what honours Him. 
That is a profound shift from self to another. I've been thinking of illustrations of this through the week as trying to connect it for us. One that, one that immediately came to mind was motherhood. Motherhood. Um, before a, a woman has a child, it's easy to think of having a child in a very romantic way. This will fulfil my life, this will make my life meaningful and worthwhile. I'll finally have a child and it'll make, make my life beautiful. And then you have the child. <laughs> and the first month, you, you don't sleep. Uh, I remember Jack Gibson, we're talking rugby league, Jack Gibson, the great coach of rugby league, uh, he was asked uh, how he slept the night before a grand final and he said, like a baby, I wake every two hours and cry. <laughs> so you have this child and, you, and it's just, it's constant up all the time, you're exhausted, you're stressful and you're thinking, this is not fulfilling my life at all. And then you get mastitis um, and it's kind of like... It's horrible to think about, isn't it? But you kind of, it's just, life is completely shattered by the experience of Get it, the child, to fulfill. Why didn't someone tell me about this before I had it? You know why? Because we told you, you wouldn't, you know, this kind of all of that. Children are very, but here's what happens. In every healthy mother, a shift happens where actually them and their needs dominate. Their growth their health and maturity is my health and maturity. Yes, a profound shift occurs and it's a healthy shift so that that they're joyful is my joy. Do you know that? You've had that experience. I've heard it with dads. I remember sitting on the beach with a dad as we were watching our kids surf, learn to surf and uh, this is years ago now and, uh, and the dad said to me, he said, you know, um, I've actually got to a stage in my life where I actually find it more satisfying and rewarding to watch them surf than me surf. Isn't that interesting? There's something, when you have a child, this, you get this other person thing that happens for you and it's healthy and it's beautiful. Paul the Apostle, he had that with God. Before his conversion, he was a, he was a passionate man, he was a devout man. But, but it was about him. But after his conversion, he now sees who he's made for, what he's made for, what he's made to do. It's from him and for him and through him. It's all things is God. And his joy, the Apostle Paul's joy, becomes is God's joy is his joy. That God is honoured is his honour. His priestly, verse 16, notice this language, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The way Paul thinks about mission and evangelism is now no longer simply about them being saved from hell, but about his work of bringing them to be an offering to his God that his God might be glorified in the Gentiles becoming saved as a community for God. Do you see the transformation that's happened in Paul? It's profound. Now, how does that happen? And have you had it? Have you had that shift? It's a growing thing and it's only possible if the Holy Spirit's in you. One of the features of being dead in sin is that you have no interest in God's glory, it's about you or humans. But the thing that happens with the whole work of the Holy Spirit is that now you have a new instinct that your life is to bring Him glory. 
and it's about His honour, and your pleasure is found in His pleasure. Have you had that experience? It's one of the tests to see whether you have the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's impossible to happen if you think of God as a distant tyrant, just an aloof figure out there. You won't ever live like Paul lived and have this experience. But if you begin to see God as He really is, as the one who has made us and given us all things, life, breath and everything else, the one who has loved us so much He's given us His only Son, if you begin to see Him as a Father, the best Father, the Father who gives good things to His children, the more you see God like that, the more you'll begin to actually be captivated by His love and a desire to please Him. Have you come to that? And for Paul, this is why he uses worship language for evangelism. Evangelism is an act of worship for Paul, bringing people to God that he might be glorified in their salvation. Paul's great Godward focus is his driver. If you ask the Apostle Paul what was the greatest reality, what was the most important reality in his life, it wouldn't be his kids. It'd be God and his honour. There's a last piece to this before I want to apply it more broadly to us and that's the partnerships this means he creates. There are two partnerships, let me go through these fairly quickly. The first partnership is an obligation created by gospel blessings. The first partnership is an obligation created by gospel blessings. Have a look at verse 25 and 26. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. Now, literally, it's in the service of the saints. And that's Paul's way of talking about the Jews. I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Jewish people there, the Jewish Christians. For Macedonia and Achaia, Gentile cities, regions, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jewish spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Now let me just tease this out for us. Um, Paul is doing something, he's taking money from Gentiles back to Jerusalem, to the poor people in Jerusalem, but not just the poor people, not just any poor people, because there's a famine happening, but to the Christians who are poor, and particularly the Jewish Christians who are poor. Now, why? Is this a passage that teaches us that we should give money to the poor? Uh, only kind of. There's other passages that teach you that, so give money to poor. Be generous to people who are poor. Yes. But that's not this passage. This passage is about Paul identifying for us the impact of spiritual blessings and what it does for you. The Gentiles have received spiritual blessings because of the suffering of the Jews. The Jews were at the very centre of God's gospel purposes and it's because of them that the gospels come to the Gentiles. It was a Jew who brought salvation, it was a Jew who brought the gospel, it was the hardening of the Jews that meant the gospel came to us. So Paul's going, Gentiles... Wake up to your obligations. You owe these people because you got your spiritual blessings from them. Now that they're in trouble financially, you ought to share your material blessings back. This is not just about the poor. This is about spiritual responsibilities and blessings. What are the applications of this to us? Well, a very most pressing one is to think differently about Jews 
we ought have no part of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewishness. We ought to care about the Jewish people who have actually been part of God's purposes to bring us salvation. And see this also. What it shows us is that if you receive spiritual blessings, that creates an obligation to share materially. Do you see the applications of that? If you are in a church, and it may not be this church, but if you're in this church or another church that you're a visitor here and you go to another church, and you find you've been spiritually blessed by the ministries of that church, then verse 27, you owe them. You owe them. You have an obligation. One of the most wonderful things we did as a church 23 years ago was uh, a church in Sydney gave significant amounts of money, it was $30,000 or something, it was back in those days significant, to help us start as a church and it put them in, the, in, in financial situ- difficulties. After a year or two of us going as a church, one of the most important things we did was pay a lot of that back. Because we, we, were, we were blessed spiritually by their sacrifice. And so it was important for us to go acknowledge that and give back. Have you received spiritually? Are you blessed spiritually? Note lastly, there's another partnership that he creates here. As he wants to go to Spain on the way through Rome, verse 24, he wants them to assist him in that mission to Spain, most likely financially, but certainly by prayer. Verse 28, he wants them to pray for him in the work. Verse 30, to join in the struggle and pray. So let me apply it to us. Paul is unique, unrepeatable in human history, he's part of God's core gospel movement to the world, but his heart, his insight into the way the world is, his insight into the invisible realities that shape all of us, those things apply. Heaven and hell are real. What good is it to gain the whole world yet lose your soul? Losing your soul is the most important concern that all of us ought to have. And as a Christian ministry, the thing that must matter most to us if we're to reflect Jesus and the Apostle Paul and God's heart is a seriousness about heaven and hell. That we care about people being one from hell and so support the mission activity. Support these guys and wonderfully they're supported. Support the work locally that we in this church, as we seek to be a mission station for the Central Coast and the country, that we can continue to further our purposes, heaven and hell. But further that, God and His glory, that we might be compelled and driven by His glory, His His pleasure, His joy, His honour, that that might shape us and our desires, that we might see the Central Coast uh, an offering acceptable to God that he might be thrilled by what we do here. But further to this, spiritual blessing establishes obligations. And today does seem a very apt, appropriate time to reflect on this, doesn't it? (laughs) Missionaries going out from us. How are you going to pray for them? Will you partner them in prayer and watching their finances? Praise God, they've got money at the moment but watch that 
But how will you partner this work as we seek to bring the gospel to people who need it so desperately? Have you received spiritually? Are you blessed spiritually through the ministries? It creates an obligation. But do you want to see God honoured in the Central Coast one for Christ? That creates a desire, a passion to give ourselves to this work. We will all be dead soon. Some of you sooner than others. We'll all be dead soon. What good is it to gain the whole world? How are you using your wealth? How are you using your money? How are you using your time? If your kids are being blessed by the ministries, can you join in the kids' ministries to help make that work better? Think about this differently to our culture encourages us to think. We are partners in a cause that is so profoundly important that ought to cause our finances, our time, our prayers, our energy to be brought to bear on all of this to God's praise and His honour. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that all of this might be the case, that please you might, um, by your Spirit, work in us to help us see invisible realities, help us see, please, the invisible realities of heaven and hell, that we might, for the love of people, be concerned to see them one to Christ. Help us see the invisible realities of your glory and your honour being at stake, that we might have that transformation of life that begins to live for you and your pleasure, you and your joy, you and your glory, that that might captivate us and change us and might create in us partnerships where we partner mission work, where we partner gospel work in the local church, financially with our time, with our prayers, with our efforts and work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.